Good morning, everyone. Uh, welcome to the webinar. We're, we'll let people uh, filter in uh, this morning. Um, maybe just starting off, we'll make a couple of introductions as people as people do so. Uh, my name is Ryan Fahey. I'm the chair of uh, the Sanctions Export Control and Anti-Money Laundering Group uh, here at Hughes Hubbard in our Washington, D.C. office. Uh, I'm privileged to be joined today by Lester Munson, who's the co-head of the international practice at BGR Group, uh, a government relations firm here in Washington, D.C. And uh, Les has a distinguished uh, career, uh, both on Capitol Hill uh, and in the executive branch, uh, including most recently the staff director for the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, uh, and is very active uh, in uh, in uh, um, following the issues, uh, including uh, the topic today. Uh, I'm also joined by my partner, Roy Liu, uh, who's uh, here with me in the Washington, D.C. office of Hughes Hubbard, uh, with a, a practice that focuses on export controls, sanctions, and CFIUS matters, uh, including uh, those involving China. He's also uh, the head of our greater China practice. Uh, before we get underway today, I'll just note that this, this webinar is being recorded uh, for later reference and use. We're going to leave about 10 minutes at the end for your questions. Uh, any questions that you pose uh, will be uh, just to the panelists here. They won't be uh, publicized to the rest of the group, uh, nor will they be recorded. And we, we do not intend to identify you in the course of, of uh, answering the question unless you'd like for us to. Uh, to encourage uh, any and all questions from each of you. We'd also be very pleased to uh, touch base after the webinar if you prefer to raise questions uh, at that time. So to get underway this morning, um, what I thought might be useful, uh, there's been a lot going on uh, with the United States relationship with China over the past uh, several years, really over the past two decades, but, but enough activity in the course of the past couple of years, and I thought it might be useful for the group and for everyone to level set a little bit um, and, and have uh, Roy cover sort of the transition from the Trump administration into the Biden administration to give us some helpful context of, you know, the environment in which this, this new committee is, is going to uh, undertake its work moving forward. So with that, Roy, why don't you help us level set uh, as best you can. Uh, concisely what's what's been going on the past couple of years. Sure. Thank you, Ryan. Um, the current landscape of US-China economic relationship is, I would say, a drastically different one from even just five years ago when the US-China tariff war started. At that time, most people believe that the US-China trade conflict would be limited to tariffs and a limited set of U.S. policy priorities, such as intellectual property and purchase of U.S. farm products. Very few people back then would have predicted a comprehensive decoupling through export controls, economic sanctions, import bans, and investment restrictions. But that, that is kind of where we are now, at least with respect to some sectors. On the export side, Five years ago, the export controls related to China were really limited to a relatively small set of items that had potential military applications and a small number of companies perceived to have directly harmed U.S. interests, such as selling U.S. items by Iran or supporting developments of weapons for the Chinese military. But now, export controls cover a much broader range of items and hundreds more Chinese companies. Now, commercial items like certain semiconductor products and semiconductor manufacturing equipment are covered. And Chinese companies allegedly involved in human rights violations or the surveillance sectors or civil military fusion programs are also covered. The US export control jurisdiction also got a lot broader. Before, only U.S. storing items and items containing a certain amount of controlled U.S. content are covered. But now, many items not made in the U.S., not containing U.S. content, but produced 
the U.S. technology, software, or equipment are also covered. On the import side, the restriction is no longer just tariffs. The U.S. has essentially prohibited importation from the Xinjiang region of China, which when you think about it, is actually a bigger geographical area than most countries. Well, technically, you can still get Xinjiang product into the U.S. by proving a lack of forced labor. But based on our experience, that is extremely difficult in practice. On the investment side, the U.S. government has vigorously enforced the Foreign Investment Risk Review Modernization Act of 2018, or FIRMA, and has required Chinese investors to make mandatory filings for transactions barely related to the U.S. The U.S. government also has prohibited U.S. persons from buying or selling publicly traded securities of certain Chinese companies allegedly engaged in China's civil military fusion programs. And there likely will be new restrictions on U.S. investments in China, at least for certain sectors such as semiconductor, artificial intelligence, quantum computing, and the surveillance. So based on the ways things currently go, there likely will be a lot more restrictions in these areas in the coming months and years. Uh, this is why uh, this new House committee we're going to talk about is very important because it is going to play a key role in shaping and forming future restrictions related to China. Well, thank, thanks very much for that, that Roy. Um, and so let's let's get underway. I mean, there's so much to cover here. We'll try to organize ourselves as best we can. Um, we probably could break this up into multiple multiple webinars to try to uh, speculate on on how exactly these issues are going to develop. But why don't we get started with uh, with Les? Why don't you give us a, uh, uh, an understanding of this committee, its purpose, uh, uh, its membership, and its priorities? Thanks, Ryan, and thanks, Roy. Uh, yeah, there's there's a lot to talk about here, and so I will I'll try to hit the the major points, and and we may want to explore um, the aspects of of various of these uh, going forward. So, first, uh, it's important to talk about the structure of this committee. <clears throat> it's a select committee. It has a limited jurisdiction to uh, the U.S.-China relationship and the strategic competition therein. It does not have legislative authority. This is not a normal standing committee of the House. It is a special committee to do oversight. And notably, the first uh, committee hearing next week, which will feature uh, Matt Pottinger and H.R. McMaster, who are uh, kind of the folks in the Trump administration who led the tougher line on China, that hearing will occur in prime time at 7 p.m. So you can kind of see that as a signal that this committee is looking to make a difference in messaging, in public relations, in in developing themes that the uh, the Congress, the House, and maybe just Republicans can use going forward as they wrestle with uh, the the bigger policy questions at a legislative level. So the committee does not have. Uh, it, the, its own ability to move legislation. One thing to keep in mind here is that a lot of the issues implicated in the U.S.-China relationship, whether they're export controls or sanctions uh, or tariffs or things like that, involve a multiplicity of committees in the House and in the Senate. Those committees are going to be and have been banging up against each other, whether it's House Foreign Affairs, House Armed Services, Energy and Commerce Committee, uh, the House Financial Services Committee, or in the Senate, Foreign Relations, Armed Services, Banking, and the Finance Committee, there's 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 an issue here with different chairs and ranking members kind of elbowing each other as they try to get the rebound of of the big policy questions. That was a basketball metaphor, by the way, for you sports fans out there. Uh, so I so I think one of one of the things to look for as this House China Committee moves forward is how do the other committees around it react, particularly in the House. What is the Foreign Affairs Committee doing? What is the Energy and Commerce Committee doing? Those committees are already having hearings on US-China policy. It'll be interesting to watch to see how those chairmen talk about what their committee's agendas are and what they're gonna do and what, what they imagine the legislative process is. And as we move forward over the next few months, look for the different committees to perhaps line up in alliance with each other, 
different chairmen or chairpersons kind of align with with others to get things done. And there's there's going to be a battle. Uh, in other words, there's going to be a, a jurisdictional battle inside the house. Some other things to look at uh, in terms of of this special House China Committee. The chairperson, Mike Gallagher, interesting fellow who who I happen to know fairly well. I think he's incredibly capable. I'm a little bit biased here. He's demonstrated bipartisan bona fides in the past. He was notably the co-chair of the Cyber Solarium Commission two or three years ago that developed a whole slate of legislative packages, many of which were adopted by Congress and have become law or have been implemented by executive order. So uh, Mike Gallagher, the chair of this China Select Committee, already has a record of accomplishment. His ranking Democrat, Raja Krishnamurthy from Illinois, is a little bit less well-known. But and is known to be both a show horse and a workhorse. If you look at the the rosters of both Republicans and Democrats on this committee, there are folks who have a policy focus. They want to get things done. Uh, there's there's you wouldn't find many of those folks in the more extreme camps in either party. So this is this is going to be a committee that will probably work well together across the aisle. They're going to get some stuff done. A uh, couple of other notes about about Gallagher. He gave one of the several nominating speeches for Kevin McCarthy to be speaker. It was arguably the best one. And during the course of that of that uh, nomination speech on the House floor, he got applause from Democrats and from the Freedom Caucus members who were opposed to Kevin McCarthy, which is kind of an amazing thing in retrospect. Uh, so he's got the ability to work with uh, the folks in his party who are a little bit further out from the mainstream and work across the aisle with Democrats. He has also hired as his staff director a fellow named Dave Hankey. Some of us may know him. He was on the Hill a few years ago working for Senator Cornyn and was the driving force at the staff level behind the FIRMA legislation that updated CFIUS. And one of the reasons I, I suspect that uh, Chairman Gallagher hired Dave Hankey is because he's shown an ability to get things done legislatively in this atmosphere of multiple jurisdictions and multiple committees being interested having a direct interest in policy outcomes. So this committee, it remains to be seen how it's going to do, but it is set up to be very effective and make a big difference in the policy debates going forward. Yeah, thanks for that introduction, Les. I mean, something that's that that I've reflected on and to your the point you've just made um, related to the, the type of staff and the capabilities and the experience of the staff that's being hired. I mean, clearly this is... Um, uh, designed to be a bipartisan committee, which distinguishes it from this China task force of a couple of years ago, which was a Republican-led effort. Um, clearly, what's been said uh, publicly by now Chairman Gallagher is that there's going to be a focus on what I'll call CFIUS-related issues. He seems very focused, for example, on TikTok and, you know, has, has been just crystal clear that he does not believe TikTok you know, ought to be doing business in the United States. He's hired somebody uh, that has the experience of, you know, dealing with inbound investment from a national security perspective. But can you say something more around the way you think, you know, that the, the, these overlapping authorities may work to, to, together, right? I mean, clearly the focus, you know, much like our practice today is, you know, CFIUS-related issues involving China, inbound investment, in other words, um, you know, uh, export control regulation, um, clearly we're on the other end of, you know, many, many years of export control reform, really going all the way back, gosh, uh, to 2008 and nine at the Commerce Department. Um, and then obviously the use of sanctions these days, which really haven't targeted China. We've really used our export control authorities to do that, although oftentimes those those things look and feel a little bit like like sanctions. Um, and I'm just curious about how, you know, as somebody that's worked on the Hill, what do you think what what do you think is going to be going on behind the scenes and trying to understand, you know, how to divvy up all these issues and to avoid looking chaotic or jockeying for, you know, particular issues when you have the House Foreign Affairs Committee, for example. Can you give us some additional insight there? Sure. And I, and I think this is someone, this is something that folks really should be paying attention to as, as we see news reports coming out about what Congress is doing. 
try to read between the lines about where the different committees are positioning themselves. This is this is going to be a little bit more art than science, and it's going to be more about relationships and negotiating than it is about actual uh, advocacy of policy per se. And 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 reporting is going to tend to focus on, you know, what the the arguments between the administration and Republicans on the Hill. It's really going to be determined at, on, on on a different kind of forum. Uh, and so, for example, uh, one issue is the House Foreign Affairs Committee has jurisdiction over export controls, most of, most of which are housed at the Department of Commerce. Uh, and this first hearing by the House Foreign Affairs Committee, the Undersecretary uh, for Business and Industry at Commerce is going to be testifying. That's that's a notable thing. It is, it is, however, difficult for the Foreign Affairs Committee as a legislative body to directly oversee and regulate through legislation the Commerce Department, where other committees have a very vested interest in overseeing what it does. The Energy and Commerce Committee, the House Financial Services Committee are gonna have something to say about the Commerce Department when it comes to export controls. So how is Chairman McCall, uh, Mike McCall of Texas gonna work with his colleagues on those other committees to get things done? Is he going to partner with Mike Gallagher at the, at the, China at the new China Committee to kind of elevate this conversation to another level and try to drive a new consensus out of the House. And then how, how do Democrats position themselves in all of this vis-a-vis -vis the different committees and the different agendas? One, one thing uh, that I think a lot of folks who are, who are thinking the Hill will be very active on this should bear in mind is the, the CHIPS Act from last year, which of course uh, provided a, a multi-billion dollar subsidy to the U.S. computer chip industry. That legislation was originally much broader, included a lot of foreign affairs provisions, sanctions provisions, export control provisions, other things. Those ultimately had to be stripped out in a conference committee process that did not work very well. Now, yes, the, the Congress was under slightly different leadership back then. The Democrats controlled the House. Now the Republicans control the House. I suspect, though, that as we move forward with uh, some sort of legislative package that is likely to come out from this, this renewed scrutiny of the U.S.-China relationship, that same dynamic is going to have to be dealt with. These different committee jurisdictions, a, a lack of, this is another issue, a lack of muscle memory among legislators about how to, how to behave in a conference committee and get a big, complex piece of legislation done in a way that satisfies all of the various interest groups. It didn't work last year. Can it work this year or next year? I think that remains to be seen. Can that, what role will the House Committee, House China Committee, the new Gallagher uh, panel play in all of that? Can it kind of change the conversation a little bit and provide a forum for these folks to come together? That'll be the, that, I think that's the big question going forward, right? So one final just topic here to really try to capture the dynamic. And, you know, I want to avoid getting back to what we would call uh, those of us that have gone to law school, the, uh, you know, constitutional law one class or, um, you know, uh, an episode of Schoolhouse Rock here around, you know, what different branches of government do. But, you know, we are taught that the and I know Les, by the way, will have strong feelings on this because he's a very strong advocate uh, for Congress. But we're taught that national security and foreign relations are really the prerogative of the executive branch. Um, I think that's what our founders intended if we go back and double check. And so it's been very interesting to see whether it's in the context of sanctions authorities over the course of the past few years and and now in the export control space and involving China, first of all, I guess the question is, isn't this what the president's supposed to do? That's one. Uh, and then two, to, to really capture the reality, what I've, I think I've seen in the past several weeks is the administration seems to be trying to get ahead of the committee and taking some stronger stances on China changing some policies and it feels like maybe i'm wrong but it feels like they're trying to address ahead of time what is now a republican house and a bipartisan committee that might you know that is you know the one uniquely aligned uh you know on one uniquely aligned topic here in washington dc and i'm wondering if you share that view so uh, a couple of thoughts, and I'll try not to go down my, my usual rabbit holes on this, Ryan, because I, I get pretty motivated. Uh, the, the Constitution gives Congress the power to regulate uh, commerce. 
Uh, it gives the, the Congress all kinds of powers over the economy, the, uh, the national security structures that we have. It can raise armies and maintain navies. Uh, the authority that the president has to implement sanctions and export controls comes to him from Congress. Congress has passed laws that give the president authority to do certain things. So everything the president does, if you read an executive order, usually in the first paragraph, it says pursuant to public law such and such, the president has the authority from Congress to do these things. So Congress has given the president authority to do all kinds of things. And under IEPA, for example, the International uh, Economic Emergency Powers Act, uh, the president has pretty broad authority to do a lot of stuff, but that's because Congress gave it to him. Congress can pull those authorities back, or it can modify those authorities, or it can double down and tell the president, it's really important that you do these things right now. And here's the things that we are going to direct you to do, unless you come back to us in a certain way and say, that's that's a bad idea. And then there's kind of some legislative arm, arm wrestling. So. This stuff begins on the Hill, but the, the Hill is, the Congress has given itself these, these internal challenges to get things done. We talked about committee jurisdictions and that kind of thing. Another, another issue is you, you've got to get bipartisan agreement. As, as you were mentioning, Republicans and Democrats are going to have to agree. The Democrats control the Senate, the Republicans control the House. One thing I'll say is that on the China issue, uh, there's been a lot of bipartisanship emerging. Note that it was Speaker Nancy Pelosi who went to Taiwan last year and created, created uh, a lot of news in the US-China relationship. Kevin McCarthy has already said he's going to go to Taiwan either this year or next year. Mike Gallagher was just there, I think, in the last few days uh, and was talking about his meetings with Taiwanese officials. So it really doesn't matter whether you're uh, a liberal like Nancy Pelosi or a conservative like Kevin McCarthy, when you're in that position as the House Speaker, there's a pretty good chance you're going to Taiwan. There is a congressional interest that goes beyond party in the U.S.-Taiwan relationship, and it has implications for the for the overall U.S.-China US bilateral relationship. There's no doubt about that. The Taiwan Relations Act, which passed in 1979, remains the law of the land, and it is many way, in many ways the guardrails uh, between which the president can behave in terms of uh, providing assistance to Taiwan and Taiwan's status in the international community. So there's there's a long track record here of congressional involvement that goes well beyond party. And so when we say this is a, a bipartisan issue, that has been true for quite some time. It remains true today, despite the, you know, what appears to be, and it in fact is some very nasty politics between the two parties and a lot of name calling, the interest here on the on the U.S.-China relationship and Taiwan is uh, remains a bipartisan concern. I'll just note one more thing quickly: uh, the the new China Committee under Mike Gallagher has said that the defense of Taiwan and the provision of assistance to Taiwan is going to be a key focus of that committee. He's already talking about clearing. He, Chairman Gallagher, is already talking about clearing this backlog of arms sales that have been. Um, uh, uh, kind of put forward as something that's going to happen, but haven't actually been delivered yet. There's about $20 billion in a, in a backlog of arms deals, and he's going to focus on getting those cleared and getting weapons to Taiwan. His his focus is very much on the relationship in the Taiwan Strait. That is that is going to implicate all of the other things that the, the committee is focused on, and therefore, I think, is going to play a role in any kind of legislative package that comes out. Yeah, thanks for all of that. Uh, Lance, and I actually want to come back to this point in a little bit when we talk, um, I want to talk a little bit about potential uh, retaliatory measures, some of which have been recently announced in China that don't don't have a lot of teeth, but that might change depending upon, you know, the the, the, the need or the at least the compelled need to, to respond to potential trips to Taiwan coming up. But let me come back to Roy first here, you know, in light of, you know, obviously there's uncertainty in the context of exactly what this committee will address and in what priority order, but but coming back to, you know, the current environment, Roy, that you've you've uh, given us some context to in terms of just the current state of things, I, I'm curious uh, first about because it the, the 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 context is significantly different. I'm I'm interested about. Chinese companies doing business in the United States. I want to sort of start there. And I'm curious around your view or what you're seeing. Um, you know, is there safe investment? Are there industries that are untouched by these issues? You know, everything from we see 
you know, Chinese interests buying up farmland, uh, like the place I come from in uh, central Illinois and, and across the Midwest. Are, are there some industries that are, that are safe for Chinese investment? Um, and, and what is the current state of, you know, companies that had been operating for a long time in the United States, in particular in the, in the tech sector? Um, can you give us a, a sense of that? Sure. Um, thank you, Ryan. So I, I'll just uh, start by saying, uh, by beginning with my observation as a lawyer, that um, like before, companies and, and lawyers really paid more attention to U.S. regulatory changes uh, because that's where the action is, and they they, they rel paid relatively little attention to congressional initiatives in part because uh, it it used to take years for those initiatives related to China to be translated into concrete legislative actions or regulatory actions, if they did at all. Uh, but recently, the, the process clearly has um, become a lot faster. So recent U.S. congressional initiatives, including uh, many of the 2020 China Task Force priorities, have already materialized to some extent. and already have had a pretty big impact on Chinese companies and companies doing business with China. So one of the China task force priorities is restriction on U.S. investment in Chinese military, uh, civil military fusion companies. And uh, so this has already happened through the so-called non-FDN Chinese military industrial complex companies list uh, issued by uh, the Treasury Department. And now, buying and purchasing publicly traded securities of those issued by those companies by U.S. persons are restricted. Um, and this list actually likely will be extended in the coming months, um, possibly to be harmonized with the other Chinese military-related lists issued by the U.S. Government, uh, government. There's a lot of, already a lot of congressional talk about that. And another uh, China task force priority that has happened to some extent is coordination with U.S. allies on imposing export controls on critical technologies with respect to China, uh, in particular with respect to semiconductor manufacturing products. Um, as we have seen recently, this already has happened uh, uh, to some extent. Uh, the U.S., Japan, and Netherlands reached an agreement to restrict certain semiconductor manufacturing equipment uh, to China. So on, on Chinese investment into the United States, uh, my observation is that, so traditionally, CFIUS was the major roadblock. And as a Chinese company, once you clear that roadblock, you are pretty much fine. But now because of the congressional scrutiny, uh, CFIUS is kind of becoming just a part of the puzzle. So as shown by what is happening to this uh, Ford CATL joint venture concerning building a battery factory in the United States, we, we now see that even for something that is clearly outside CPS jurisdiction and something that has no clear connection with national security, uh, congressional scrutiny could very well uh, derail the whole deal. Uh, I, I personally, I think Chinese investment in the United States is still possible. But uh, it's just that the, the relevant companies need to really learn to get better at adapting to the fast-changing political and regulatory landscape. Uh, it's kind of like switching from 2D chess to 3D chess. So before, you could just worry about regulatory restrictions. Now you really need to keep an eye out for the congressional development, uh, especially now um, uh, developments related to this new House Select Committee. I'd be very interested less in terms of, you know, now these days, I suppose a company could engage you or your lobbying firm to go up to the hill and make some arguments around, you know, and you would give good advice, of course, the reality of the situation. Um, but, but if you were to go up on the hill, you know, would you find if you made the right argument, I guess the question is, what argument would you make and would anyone listen to you? Uh, you know, is there some tolerance for some investment, you know, to sort of help prop up the, the U.S. economy and, and, you know, continue some healthy relationship with, with China, even if limited? Right. Uh, great question. And, and I think the, 
the mood on the Hill is, and, and has been for quite some time, has been very difficult. And for, for a lot of companies, it may be better uh, to not go to the Hill and have conversations because you may just draw attention to yourself. So you need to make like the first decision ought to be, is this something where if we went up to the Hill, it would be a net positive for us. In other words, we would be answering more questions uh, then we would be leaving unanswered. There's a lot of folks uh, who I think would be would be well advised to uh, be be stealthier and be uh, and and try to stay out of out of the line of fire. Line of fire is um, is focused as we discussed a little bit earlier on a lot of human rights issues. Xinjiang province, the treatment of Uyghurs is very much a focus of Congress, uh, perhaps appropriately so. And so any any uh, intersection or Venn diagram that a company has with, with that region and those issues should be a first consideration. I think that's kind of 101. Um, uh, another thing to, to think about here is, uh, is, is a little more complicated dynamic. And uh, certainly one of the companies that's in uh, the, under the most scrutiny is Huawei uh, currently. And a couple, couple of quick notes, a few weeks ago, uh, uh, Chairman McCall of the House Foreign Affairs Committee uh, was doing a little oversight of commerce and realized that uh, a very large number of licenses had been given to companies to do business with Huawei. He, he publicized that. As soon as it came out, the administration announced some changes in the way it was doing licenses for Huawei under, under various uh, uh, export control strictures. So that, that's, that sunlight ability, that daylight ability of Congress to kind of, it needs to be monitored. This, this kind of goes to the basic nature of the administration versus Congress. The administration is trying to administer the day-to-day -day relationship in the bilateral relationship between the U.S. and China. It's trying to manage all of these authorities Congress has given it. Congress is focused on a more longer-term question and is more interested in long-term interests and values. So as we see the administration try to wrestle day-to-day -day with a sensible U.S.-China policy, and I think the administration is trying to be tough uh, in certain areas and be open to commerce in other areas, Congress has a, a longer term focus. And, and when events on the ground run afoul of what Congress sees as the long term interests, whether it's you know balloons coming across the United States or a revelation about the number of licenses given under Huawei sanctions uh, or other things, uh, that, that can change the dynamic pretty quickly in the bilateral relationship. So sometimes Congress just showing up and looking around and saying things can make a big difference. Let me, let me make one other quick point, Ryan, about, about uh, Huawei and where a lot of this stuff began. It was actually 13 years ago. There was a story in the New York Times about Huawei trading with Iran. And the original reason Huawei and also ZTE got on the radar screen of U.S. policymakers was over their trade with Iran in defiance of U.S. and multilateral sanctions. So there's always, it's every time you think you can kind of cabin the, the relationship uh, between the U.S. and China and try to make determinations about how what companies can do, realize that Congress doesn't view the cabin that way. They, they view it as a much broader thing. And there are things that can happen around the globe, externalities that can have a big impact on where these policies are going to end up. That's this Iran issue is, has cropped up again recently in the news. That's also something to pay attention to. That is something that will very much get Congress interested in changing things quickly. Yeah, and it's 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 a it's a good point, Les, because this is one of the areas in which you know I think to take a more balanced approach. Uh, historically, it's been the the export control authorities to allow for business to continue chi in China either because the U.S. government gives permission to it, oftentimes through the Commerce Department, as they have for Huawei-related licenses, or to force them to operate outside of U.S. jurisdiction to avoid, you know, any contribution of the U.S. economy to their, their efforts. But you've noted, you've noted a couple of areas in which the, the government has used its, its more draconian sanctions authorities to target conduct. So one of those areas is, is of course, uh, in the context of so-called secondary sanctions. In other words, being added to the to the SDN list for certain significant material uh, transactions with designated parties. If you know business with Iran, it significantly uh, limited China's um, you know economic relationship with Iran in light of those secondary sanctions. And now we see in the press 
the past couple of days, just to be very timely, uh, questions around China's support for Russia, material support, in fact, in terms of the, the war in, the, in, in Ukraine. And, you know, I predict that that's going to be an area where we'll see uh, significant threats of secondary sanctions for any support of the Russian uh, military. And it's it's really come to be, I, I think, one of the most interesting questions out there, because there's no other country, I, I believe, who's sort of willing, at least publicly, to appear as as being at least agnostic as to the, the war in Ukraine. I just wonder if there's additional thoughts on that. I mean, and the, the sentiment on the Hill must be just overwhelmingly strong around, you know, a potential support between China and Russia. And I, I could see some saber rattling around the use of sanctions authorities to address it. Yeah, I, I think that's a, a great point, Ryan. And I, I, I agree completely. Um, and, and in a way, this is, this is a concern just not just for China connected companies, whether it's Chinese companies doing business in the US or, or multilateral or US companies doing business with China. It's really a question for any American company that you need to be monitoring uh, your activities in Russia uh, and because there, there could be consequences for uh, really any, in almost any sector uh, for, your, for your business relationship there. A lot, of, a lot of companies a year ago, once the invasion happened, pulled out immediately and didn't and didn't want to have to deal with the consequences of what could be very severe sanctions and, and perhaps just, you know, uh, at a very human level were were quite appalled at what was happening um, and didn't want their their company's good name associated with it. There's a lot of folks who have who have remained doing business with Russia and, so, and in many cases appropriately so, whether it's on a humanitarian front or things that have absolutely nothing to do with national security. But that's really something that that I think all companies should be mindful of. And this goes to uh, a larger point here, which is the old free trade consensus in Washington, which was very much bipartisan, is gone. Right, the uh, the, the Obama administration was working on multilateral free trade deals uh, in Asia and with Europe, and had broad authority to do so. That came to a grinding halt near the end of the Obama administration. Both Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump during the campaign in 2016 came out against the the free trade agreement in the Asia Pacific region, uh, that, has, that has not changed. The, the tariffs that the Trump administration imposed in, during the last two, three years of the Trump administration, which would have been viewed as draconian a decade earlier, all of those were maintained by the Biden administration. There is, there is much more bipartisan agreement on a, on a more uh, limited trading situation and this 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 kind of goes well beyond just traditional definitions of trade and jurisdictions and and that kind of thing there's just much less interest in unfettered business ties than there was previously so i think really all companies kind of need to be you know uh, uh on the balls of their feet and have their head on a swivel and be aware of all of the things that could be impacting their business relationships around the world it's a, a great transition point, Les, that you made um, here because I want to I want to shift to U.S. or really Western investment and operations, um, you know, doing business or having manufacturing activities in in China. Yesterday, there was a, a New York Times um, article about the relocation of manufacturing Chinese companies, but moving manufacturing capability to Mexico. And I thought it was a great article because it talked a lot about some of the supply chain challenges that came in the pandemic and shipping costs. But it missed, in my view, one of the more significant points of all of this because it it really didn't focus on the impact of all of these initiatives. You know, whether those are challenges around labor in Xinjiang, uh, the significant export controls and sanctions. That have been imposed in China and the impact of all of that in wanting to even the Chinese companies wanting to relocate their manufacturing activities to a place that can be closer to the United States, more regional, you know, alongside these supply chain issues. And so I'm I'm just really curious, maybe starting with Roy here, you know, what are we seeing with, you know, am I right to think that that was a hole in the story that was out in the New York Times yesterday? What are we seeing with companies that want to sell in China, 
Uh, and what are we seeing with companies that have traditionally seen, you know, China as sort of the factory to the to the world and, and wanting to, to place manufacturing capabilities there? Um, what's been the impact of these initiatives? And and if you if you can speculate for us the impact of this committee's work on, you know, Western companies. Yeah, that's uh, really a great question, Ryan, and, and it's a very important question now for a lot of companies doing business with China and, and of course, Chinese companies. So nowadays, uh, stretching supply chain from the U.S. into China uh, and vice versa uh, is trickier than ever uh, because of this fast changing landscape. Uh, well, to be sure, this can be done in many cases must be done. But now you really have to navigate uh, a very complex import and export and sometimes investment restrictions. Um, to use made in China items for US market um, right now, as you pointed out, Ryan, you now need to think about not just the tariff issues, but also uh, import restrictions, especially those related to Xinjiang. You need to be ready to prove that anything you import into the US is like Xinjiang free, basically. Uh, not just that the product itself is not made in Xinjiang, but also the pro product must not incorporate any parts or components or material made in Xinjiang. Uh, this can be very hard in practice because you're essentially asked to prove the negative. Uh, but unfortunately for many companies, uh, especially those in uh, the targeted industries, setting up internal procedures to do this is very important because the forced labor a division of U.S. customs is increasingly aggressive in enforcing this requirement. And also, uh, like vice versa, to provide any made-in U.S. items for your China market, the companies now need to make sure that, like if they increasingly need to make sure that they do not violate any U.S. export control requirements, which again, are, are changing very fast. This can get very tricky, uh, especially if you're in certain industries, such as the semiconductor industry, or if your customers are affiliated with um, uh, companies blacklisted by the U.S. government or receiving congressional scrutiny. Um, now there's a lot of those companies in China and there will be a lot more in the future. And because of the current congressional scrutiny, um, it's really um, these, these things, the import restrictions and export controls and investment restrictions could really change very fast uh, based on you know current uh, events, like if we have another balloon incident, or um, as you and Les mentioned, if, if uh, China changes its stance on Ukraine, uh, we could very well see a lot of changes within a very short period of time. So this is definitely um, uh, companies need to pay attention to. So their supply chain could be related to China, could really be disrupted uh, very, very quickly. And, and not so surprisingly, a lot of companies, including Chinese companies, are looking for alternatives. And I think that's the wise thing to do. Ryan, can I can I just add to, to what Roy was saying? I, I totally agree with him. There's, there's a lot of conversation in Washington and on the Hill in particular about ally shoring, friend shoring, and near shoring, this idea that we, we can we can separate the U.S. economy from the Chinese economy by relocating U.S. investment in other countries. Much easier said than done. Uh, and those and those ideas, while while they may have some merit to them, don't have a lot of uh, meat on the bones in terms of U.S. government incentives and programs and and strictures and that kind of thing. And Congress, frankly, is unlikely to do anything proactive to encourage. Uh, companies to locate in a different place. That doesn't mean there aren't opportunities there for countries. And um, uh, just in 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 my in my day job, uh, you know, I've I've seen uh, countries and places you you wouldn't expect uh, seeking U.S. investment under the Chips Act, trying to get involved in uh, manufacturing of computer chips in places that that would not um, immediately strike you as a logical place for it. Point is, there's there's a lot of opportunity out there for companies given the, the current uh, kind of hostility in the US-China economic relationship, there's opportunities to go elsewhere. Don't expect a lot of help from the US government, but maybe there are ways to work with host countries and through State Department diplomatic efforts to at least provide a conducive environment, if not actual program support for what you're doing. 
Yeah, a couple of a couple of questions come to mind, but I, I I'm I'm curious about you know one thing. The other the other piece of news from the past week or so was, you know, and this relates to Taiwan in response to, you know, what have been, uh, you know, we we've had uh, you know shipments of weapons to t Taiwan for decades now. Um, but there's been, I, I, I think, inspired likely by some of the export controls and sanctions that have been imposed, these retaliatory measures, namely that that Raytheon and Lockheed Martin would be designated essentially on the blacklist for these sales and that the Chinese government would pursue two times the value of these, these shipments uh, of, of weapons uh, in terms of fines and penalties. Now, this is a big statement, of course, but it has little impact because, of course, as defense contractors, uh, you know, essentially Lockheed and Raytheon have no operations in China, nor would they be permitted to because of the longstanding military uh, arms embargo on China, and they don't they don't move in this space. But I'm curious, you know, obviously that's intended to be, you know, a shot across the bow. And there's still significant U.S. operations in China, some even involving dual use um, goods. And obviously, many U.S. companies are still dependent on China supply chains. But I'm just curious, Les, maybe starting with you. Do you get the sense that either the committee or other members of Congress are sensitive to these retaliatory measures and want to really measure what it is they do? Certainly not publicly. They're not going to be seen as 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 sort of you know being intimidated by these. But but substantively and from policy perspective, do you think it's on their radar? Do you think people will be will, will factor that into the calculus up on the hill? These these potential retaliatory measures. So I I think it's uh, there's not a clear answer to that, Ryan. I think you're going to get members of Congress who, of course, are sympathetic to the plight of companies that are based in their district or employ a lot of their constituents in their, you know, in their district or their state, uh, or who have relationships with important economic actors that that impact their their voting base. I mean, that's kind of the basic bread and butter of uh, congressional interest in the economy. There's no doubt. So if there's, you can have a quiet conversation with a key member of Congress about, hey, this is, you know, we're, we're very concerned about this. We're gonna need your help on this. That's probably something where you're, you're gonna get a little bit of traction outside of the limelight it's not something you want uh on the front page of the newspaper perhaps but it's you know there's you're, you're going to have constructive conversations i think in certain situations with members on things like that generally speaking though there's not going to be a lot of sympathy from american policymakers on this front at the end of the day you're likely to get a warning from a member of congress well you know that's that's kind of the price of doing business you're going to have to you may have to make a tough decision about where your investments are let me know if i can help you about uh with with maybe some programs although there aren't many to help you relocate somewhere else unless you're coming directly to the us uh but there's in public you're you're not going to get uh i think a lot of a lot of sympathy from american policymakers who are going to say well you know you've you've had a pretty good ride for for decades and and things are changing and uh, you know the, the China gets a vote here, right? The behavior of the Chinese government does matter and is going to is going to produce reactions. And and one of the things that uh, makes me a little pessimistic about the ability of the Biden administration to manage this relationship was during the balloon incident, we couldn't even have a phone call between top defense officials to discuss what was going on and what measures were going to be taken and a way to kind of calm things down. So there's there's real tension at the top levels between the US and China. That is real. That makes it harder to, to have these quiet conversations and settle things down. And, and members of Congress know that. And I think businesses need to be well aware that while you may get a little bit of help behind the scenes, at the end of the day, this 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 real tension in the relationship, not something any one policymaker is going to change. Yeah, I want to I want to transition to some some final comments and would welcome uh, participants to the extent you have questions. Again, only uh, we the panelists will will see them come in. But if you'd like to start filtering in some questions into the the Q and A chat, we'll we'll try to address those in the course of the the, the final ten minutes of the the webinar. So feel welcome to do that, and I'll I'll. Uh, handle those as they as they come in, but but just to sort of to try to wrap up here uh, as best we can, uh, maybe starting with Roy. Um, 
you know, from a from a legal and compliance perspective, um, both with respect to companies, you know, Chinese investment and companies doing business in the United States, and and obviously both U.S. companies, but also Chinese companies dependent on U.S. technology doing business in China. What are your thoughts on how to prepare, given the uncertainty? Uh, nevertheless, what would you what would you recommend? Uh, to companies who want to try to continue to navigate these troubled waters uh, and, and, you know, in the course of the next couple of years, how to place their investments and resources in the, particular in the sort of legal compliance front. Thank you, Ryan. That's uh, really the key question for companies doing business with China as well as their lawyers. So uh, given the changing landscape, very fast changing landscape, I, I think it's very important for companies to see its compliance program as a comprehensive and dynamic risk mitigation program rather than just an old school clear cut compliance program. So the numerous rules, new rules on China and the new initiatives on China, um, uh, some of these restrictions were somewhat rushed out and have created a lot of gray areas. And also the possibility of future restrictions has created uh, a lot of uncertainty. So companies will have to constantly be tweaking and updating their compliance programs by really asking themselves, uh, like, where do I draw the line in the current gray areas? And what new restrictions might my company get? And how do I set up internal procedures to prepare for these new restrictions, which now we have seen can happen very quickly. So companies doing business with China and Chinese companies, um, as I mentioned, traditionally paid more attention to regulatory changes rather than what's going on at congressional hearing. But uh, with the new congressional in initiative and the establishment of this new House Select Committee on China, this likely will need to change. So before, you know, it took a lot of time for committee reports to be translated into concrete regulatory actions, but now that process may be much faster. Um, one other thing I think companies need to prepare for is that the new House Select Committee likely will initiate uh, a lot of new congressional hearings on Chinese companies and company do, companies doing business with China. So the committee does not, as Les pointed out, have direct legislative power, but their hearings and related reports likely will lead to regulatory and legal actions against the target companies. Uh, this we actually know from precedent. The uh, 2012 congressional hearing on Chinese telecommunications companies, ZTE and Huawei, ultimately led to US government investigations of those companies, export controls on those companies, as well as government and pr procurement and FCC bans against those companies' products. Uh, the ongoing congressional investigation of TikTok and its parent company ByteDance, uh, as you mentioned, Ryan, uh, likely also will lead to restrictions on those companies. The Chinese companies, technology companies, especially those that collect or process Americans' personal data or somehow got involved in um, the Chinese surveillance industry, uh, likely will be the focus of the committee in the near term. But there's a lot of political incentives in the U.S. right now to focus on those companies after the recent balloon incident. So this risk means that I think the companies exposed to China need to think about not just current legal requirements when they set up their compliance program, but they also need to think about the fundamental policy concerns of U.S. Congress and government, as well as how to address those concerns to the extent possible under their uh, internal procedures. So those are my thoughts on, on compliance programs. Th thanks for that, Roy. I want to I want to ask the same question of, of Les, but to take one of the questions that have come in from the chat, um, I'd like to see if you can address it as well. And one question from me as well. So, so what should companies do to prepare? Two, what's the timing of any potential, you know, China-related legislation? And then three, should we anticipate companies being called before the committee, especially Chinese companies? You know, is Congress willing to sort of compel uh, testimony um, 
to sort of try to examine more closely Chinese company operations, whether it be TikTok or others? Yeah, uh, great questions, uh, Ryan. I think to, to, for companies to prepare for this, you know, a self audit and a self kind of um, uh, in campaign world, uh, you know, you say you do oppo on yourself, do opposition research on yourself. What is your what are your risk factors? What are the areas that you need to be concerned about? Be aware of them. Uh, take whatever steps you need to do to to mitigate what could be damaged there. And and bear in mind. This is a freewheeling situation. There's a lot of entrepreneurial policy making going on. How many governors have now banned TikTok from official state phones? I'm not sure how much of an impact that has in the real world, but there's a lot of governors issuing executive orders. This was all before the balloon war thing happened. So if anything, the, the pressure for entrepreneurial policy making is going to increase. What's, what's the timing for China-related legislation? I think it's going to be at the end of this year and uh, even at the end of next year. And, and note that next year, 2024, is going to be a presidential election year in the United States, of course. So there's there's going to be limited opportunities for uh, congressional legislation to become law. But the NDAA process this year, which will happen in September, October, November, after the, the debt limit and budget situation has been has been dealt with, uh, hopefully successfully, then I think you're likely to see some, some policy initiatives on the NDAA legislation which will become law and almost certain at the end of this year. And I would even think that next year, you know, the China Select Committee has a two-year mandate. Uh, and I think Gallagher and Krishnamurthy are going to be targeting a legislative package for 2024. Is that realistic given presidential politics? We'll find out, but I, I certainly wouldn't rule it out. And yes, I think the China Committee is likely to call witnesses, people who don't necessarily want to testify that uh, Chairman Gallagher does have subpoena power. So he can he can bring folks forth to talk about uh, uh, their company's relationship with China and and ask whatever questions that may be productive or embarrassing. And so that is, that is again, this, this notion of being prepared to deal with entrepreneurial policymaking activity, be aware of how committee hearings work, uh, be aware of what you can do and can't do in public to protect yourself uh, and, and be, and have a, and have a real um, uh, a kind of bottom line sense of uh, here's places where we may need to make some changes. Here's places where we can mitigate damage. And here's some things that we're just going to have to kind of bite the bullet on and maybe take some risks. Yeah, thanks for that, uh, Les. Um, it's always interesting to reconcile uh, investigations generally outside and then congressional investigations, which take on <laughs> a, a hugely different different dynamic and no doubt would, would hear. Um, Another question that, that's come in, and, and Roy, I'll direct this one to you. It's a it's a really really good one. You know, clearly the the export control laws are designed to restrict access to items that are subject, as we say, to the EAR, the Export Administration Regulation. So controls around technology transfer. But what about what about services to some of these Chinese tech companies? Not the sale of goods, but the provision of services by U.S. companies to companies like ZTE or Huawei or, or others. Is that a safer arena uh, or, or, or do you think that, that it's rife with, you know, legal and compliance issues? Yeah, I actually I, I actually think uh, the issue right now is like for a lot of Chinese technology companies is not really goods versus services. Uh, the reason is that for a lot of those companies, their product really, like there isn't like a very clear dividing line between goods and services. Like a lot of electronic products, they are goods, but they really are designed to provide services. So I would say anything, uh, any goods or services to the extent that they would cause key American data or information to fall into uh, the hands of Chinese companies, uh, could raise a concern uh, in the U.S. these days. Uh, of course, there's a separate uh, concern from the U.S. side about supply chain security, like relying on Chinese goods, whether that's going to um, uh, uh, really uh, pose a long-term national security threat. But from what I see, really the U.S. concern right now, the bigger concern is really like U.S. Uh, important U.S. information and data uh, fall into Chinese hands because from their perspective, 
that could immediately cause harm to U.S. national security. Yeah, thank, thank you for that, Roy. I see we're at the top of the hour here, so uh, we're committed to ending on time, but I want to first start by uh, thanking um, Les and, and Roy for this important conversation. It's something we may wish to revisit once the uh, committee's work actually begins, and to the extent that uh, anyone has any additional questions, we'd welcome you to reach out on the side. You have our contact information, and uh, hope you all have a, have a great day. Thanks again for participating. Thanks, Roy. Thanks, Les. Bye-bye. Thanks, Ryan. Thanks, Roy. Thank you. Bye-bye. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.